All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this magnificent privilege, this honor of gathering together as family this evening in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you so much for all the grace, the mercy, and, your lo and the love you've shown us over the years, and particularly this evening as you continue to guide us through Scripture so that we understand the nuances of life, so that we understand and without escape our own depravity and our need for your Son, our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray for those not with us this evening, again, that earnestly desire to be here with us, that they know that we are with them in spirit and that we're praying for them and their safe return. Your will be done. We pray also for those still lost in this world, Father, that before it's too late, maybe we are given the opportunity even to partake in evangelizing them so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a privilege that is, Father. Thank you for it. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt against us to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is Why are the Apostles So Encouraging? By grace they were prepared. Uh, fantastic principles we've been learning now for months and months. Uh, and we really are at the end of this sort of um, journey, uh, at least as far as our current working framework is concerned, especially concerning what the apostles lacked uh, and how we might be encouraged by such things. From uh, Sunday's and Tuesday's lessons as a review, we were given this to think about gratitude for the gospel. I think we can um, fall prey to becoming familiar. It's, it's almost heinous to think about that to become familiar with the gospel. I mean, how do you become familiar with the cross? How do you become familiar with our Lord and Savior? Yet, frankly, it happens. Anyone want to raise their hand and say that it doesn't happen? Of course it happens. And frankly, that's why we're encouraged by the apostles, because, heck, even Peter denied them three times. <laughs> and so... It happens, and this has been sort of the wake-up call that we've been getting from the pulpit as of late. Every day we wake up, we should include in awe or be in wonder for the fact that God has saved us by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Every day we wake up should include in awe and wonder for the fact that God has saved us by grace through faith. Go to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. This evening's message has uh, quite a few moving parts, so try to hang in there. If you're not kept up, just sort of, you know, hang in there best you can. Romans 1.16. Again, this is the point on the board. Gratitude for the gospel. Paul said it, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power... A lot of work on power as of late. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And I was thinking about that uh, today. We are saved. Think about this. And this is why we should have this gratitude towards the gospel, because the gospel is alive in us. It's not just on the back of some coin or some track. It's alive in us. We live by it. We depend on it. Our very hope for eternal life depends upon it. So we have to, as I like to coin it, live the gospel reality. So think about it this way. We are saved not just once, but daily by the very power of God. What did verse 16 say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Is that a one-time thing that we're supposed to just rest our hats on? Say, oh, in 1973 I was saved, I was baptized, this whole thing. No, we're supposed to live this thing. It says the righteous man lives by faith, from faith to faith. That means it's an active faith that moves We're sanctified. This is what the Spirit's been teaching us. We are saved not just once. And then we hang our spurs up and say, you know, giddy up off into the sunset. I guess I'll see you in heaven, Jesus. We're not saved just once. We're saved daily. Saved means delivered. And unless anyone here wants to say that they've been completely delivered from sin, not just the penalty, but the very power of sin, or the presence of sin in our lives, then guess what? We have to be saved daily. Thanks be to God. That's the point. That's what Paul is writing. And that's why every time we go back to this passage, it just magnifies, doesn't it? It just amplifies. Why? Because we're learning more and more about the centerpiece of our life and what it should be. And it is the gospel. It's why God leaves us here after salvation. I mean, what other purpose do we have? But what are we going to be, what? Reckless endangerment to ourselves? What are we here for? So we are saved not just once, but daily by the very power of God. And that's the way you ought to think about the gospel. Not just some one-time event that you're supposedly grateful for because you get a free trip to heaven. We are saved not just once, but daily by the very power of God, which really is an ongoing reason to be very grateful Because you have real-time power when you have genuine faith. For example, we saw this on Tuesday. Go to 1 John 2.14. 1 John 2.14. You have real power when you have genuine faith. 1 John 2.14. Not a spurious or a a, a false faith. Genuine faith. 1 John 2.14. He wrote, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You can't do that on your own. That takes real power. And, and, and John's not just, John's talking about it in the active sense, being saved daily, being able to overcome daily even, not just one time. We have power to keep his commandments even, something unbelievers are incapable of doing, even if they do the same things we do. Again, 
we are able to keep his commandments the way he wants us to keep them. You know, it's just like a parent who says, clean your room. And the kids, you know, you know, the whole time. I cleaned it. Or would the parent really want a kid to say, I'm grateful I have a room. Let me go clean it since you've asked me. Which one is following the commandment? They're doing the same thing. At the end of the day, the, the room's tidied up, right? Well, which one do you think is actually following the commandment? Because included in the commandments of God is the heart, is the motivation, is the attitude. That's why religion never works, because the attitude's always wrong. We think we can appease God by doing certain things, going to church and saying this prayer and repeating that prayer a bazillion times. That's garbage. So we have the power to keep his commandments, something unbelievers are incapable of doing, even if they do the same things we do. Why? Because their heart isn't right. That's why. Go to 1 John 5.1. 1 John 5.1. You see, there's no fooling God because, as Scripture said, says, God sees the heart, right? So God sees your attitude and everything that you do. John, 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. That's a big deal. His commandments are not burdensome. Matter of fact, they're there to set us free to free us from all the burdens of the flesh. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Guess what? Our faith. Again, you have to have genuine faith to have real power. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul wrote about this, or his ability to depend upon the power of God for everything in his life. Go to Philippians 4, 11. For everything, and that's our example, was not Paul an apostle? He's not the one we've been studying uh, as of late, but he is certainly an apostle. And what did he use the power of God for? Everything. Everything. You know, I've intimated this with you in the past because I was an arrogant you-know-what. And I said, no, you know, God, you're a busy guy. I'll take care of this. And, you know, you, I'll, you take all the big things, I'll take the little things. That's garbage thinking. Completely garbage Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says it, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not some things, not most things, not the things that I really, you know, need him for. All things through him who strengthens me. Again, the point on the board that the Spirit's developing right at the outset here is have gratitude for the gospel. Every day we wake up should include an awe and wonder for the fact that God has saved us by grace through faith. And this evening he's also added that we are saved not just once, but daily. And I'll reflect with you here for a moment. This past week was a, uh, quite an introspective week uh, for me. 
Um, I had sent out um, the latest blog to someone I would consider a devout Catholic. And uh, as you know, the gist of it was to biblically explain why this human, or why human thought that we are somehow, or this, this human thought that we are somehow inherently good deep down, that that's a false statement. We're born depraved. That's what the Bible says. We're not trying to shuck away or peel away layers of ugliness so that we could get to someone good. No, we are born in sin. And that was the gist of the blog, was to say what what the Bible says, that we are not inherently good. We're not born inherently good. Exactly the opposite is true. And that's why we need a Savior. Well, believe it or not, the response I received from this person was essentially that they believe that God creates everyone good. That was their response. They said, I don't believe this. There was no scripture, don't get me wrong. There was absolutely no scripture in their response. Of course, there couldn't be, because scripture doesn't support such a thing. But this person says, I don't, I, I don't believe that because I believe that God creates everyone good. And that the only reason we do anything bad is because we fail to say no to Satan. First, that's flat out wrong. And there was zero scripture proffered, zero scripture presented as a rebuttal even. Hey, I don't believe that because this is what I see in the Bible. Nothing. It was someone's opinion about God. But I think the thing that also stands out to me and still does right now is that this person, though claiming to be a a Catholic, doesn't understand their own church's doctrines. For as far as I understand it, even the Catholic Church, though, though dead wrong about the gospel, states that man isn't born good. So I don't even know where this person, this person is somewhere between being a what they say is a Catholic and ecumenical or, or, or something else. Which is why, you know, in the Catholic religion, entire lives are, try, are spent trying to be righteous enough for entrance into heaven. It's why just about every Catholic I've ever met is insecure. You ask them, how's your salvation? You you going to make it to heaven? I think so. Why do you mean you think so? I think so. I think I'm going to be good enough. What the heck, man? You're never going to be good enough. That's the whole point of the cross. They don't understand that. But this person was somewhere between that and something else even, which means a supposed devout cat. And I'm not picking on the Catholics. It could be many religions. It's halfway between their own religion, which they don't even understand, and something possibly even more heinous that they don't understand. But none of it, mind you, is in the Bible. That's the whole point. None of it's in the Bible. So what, it's everybody's opinion? No. God's going to bow down to man's opinion about salvation? I don't think so. So this was quite a disturbing exchange. And as you can imagine, it made me think, Why? a person ends up in that place. It's interesting um, because when I sat down to read my Bible this morning, the Spirit took me to 1 Corinthians 1, 
And after reading this one chapter, I had perfect clarity on why this person said what they said. In brief, as we'll see, to this person, the cross of Jesus is foolishness. They may never say that, but that's exactly what they're saying when they say what they say. What did Jesus die for then if people are born good enough on their own accord to make it to heaven, to be saved, to be able to save themselves? What did Jesus die for then? As Paul would say, he must have died needlessly. By the way, this is the same person who's told me that they believe that God will save Muslims and Hindus and everyone else. Why? Because he'd never create someone and then sentence them to hell. That's their argument. The problem is that is void of Scripture. There is absolutely no support whatsoever in the Word of God. My retort to them was, then you really just concede this. You don't believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God. That's what you're telling me. You don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That's what you're telling me. If you want to concede that, I'm good. End of discussion. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. I'm not going to keep haunting you about it. I've said my piece. I've stated my case. I've used... I mean, how many verses were just in that one little blog? It's like three pages long. It had 20 verses in it, for crying out loud. I got nothing back. But that's the way it goes. This is why I will make this plain statement. Any Catholic that believes or follows the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's what they believe, and that's all they've ever believed, cannot be saved. Why? They have the gospel wrong. That's why. Any, and I'm talking about someone who abides by their doctrines. If that's all they believe, they cannot be saved. That's not me talking. That's this talking. This is why I believe, and this stinks, honestly. I have a lot. Look, I grew up Catholic. A lot of my extended family is from this religion. It stinks to know the truth and know that these people reject it. But this is why I believe most devout Catholics aren't actually saved. Not the ones I know. Which is also why when presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they reject it. And just as a side note, don't ever be fooled by a person who simply answers the question, is Jesus your Savior? Oh, oh yes, of course. Don't ever be fooled by that. Ask the probing question. What does that mean to you? Saved from what exactly? And why are you, why are you striving so hard? to be good enough to impress God. Why are you doing that thing? Are you afraid of your own salvation? Do you have zero hope for salvation? Is that what this really comes down to? Is this is why you're still striving? This is why you can't say with a straight face that you are guaranteed salvation from God Himself? That's why you can't say that with a straight face because you don't even understand what the Bible has to say about salvation in the first place? So don't ever be fooled 
when someone says, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is my Savior. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, what does that mean, you believe in Jesus? Seriously, what does that actually mean? Well, he said, you've got to believe in me. Well, if you never open up your Bible and know what exactly what he said, how do you believe in him? Have you met him recently? Seriously. Where do you get the facts about Jesus Christ? Where do you get the truth about him? In the Bible. And if you're not willing to open up your Bible, at least go to a Bible class like this one and begin to learn, then you too are going to speculate. And as the Bible says in Romans 1, invent your own doctrines like this person was doing. And there's no way that biblical, uh, biblically those things can be supported, which is why you never get Scripture behind their inventions. Chances are, if a person is Catholic, they don't even understand the problem of salvation. How do I know that? I grew up as a Catholic. I certainly didn't. My wife grew up even more devout than me, and she said Jesus was barely mentioned. Jesus, I guess, is a swell guy. A model citizen, that's how we're supposed to look at Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who bore the sins of the world on his on his, own, on his own self? We're supposed to look at him as a swell guy, a model citizen? <laughs> That's it? <laughs> He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the reason for the gospel. He's the very essence, the fullness of grace and truth. If you don't get Jesus, you don't get the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ said that, not Pastor Ed, if you don't understand the problem statement, then you, what are you gonna, who are you going to be looking for? If you don't understand that you're depraved, if you're one of these confused people that thinks that you were born somehow good and you just need to peel back the onions and eventually you'll pop out like a butterfly, what do you need a Savior for? Kind of hard to conceptualize the need for a Savior if your definition of salvation is askew. Don't you think? In fact, up here on the board, how the gospel gets perverted. A person who doesn't understand salvation proper won't seek the Savior proper. Rather, they will seek a different Savior to a different problem statement. Most of the time, people believe they can save themselves. They can do all the work. You know, where is she? Come on, sweetie. They can dress up the pig. You see? Put some pumps on there, some lipstick, some long eyelashes, and all of a sudden the flesh is presentable to God. No, it's not. It's still a pig. But that's what people think they can do. Dress up a pig and then end up, what, the pearly gates? I can walk in because I look good to God? No, wood, hay, and straw. All those so-called human good works are garbage. person who doesn't understand salvation proper won't seek the Savior proper. Rather, they will seek a different Savior to a different problem statement. A lot of people think the problem statement is just making myself better, cleaning up my act. Well, I got, what's the average person lives, what, 75 years, 78 years, or something like that, male, female. Wow, I'm only like in my 20s. I got a whole lot of time to goof off. And then I'll clean up my act later, because that's the real problem. The problem is I just need to clean up my act. That's garbage. 
You need a Savior. That's what we need to be telling people. That's what we need to be telling people. Listen, my friends, you were born depraved. I didn't write the book. That's what the Bible says. That's what the sovereign God of the universe says. It says, I'm offended by you. But I have also, as the sovereign God of the universe, solved the problem. I became a man, died on the cross, and took all your sins so that I could justify you and make you righteous so that you wouldn't have to present me with a pig, but an actual new creature being born again. That's grace, right? Again, a person who doesn't understand salvation proper won't seek the Savior proper. Rather, they will seek a different Savior to a different problem statement. The latter is how Satan deceives the world. He proposes a different problem, and then he's off and running. Therefore, when someone like me comes along with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it is discarded as foolishness. So as we'll see in our passage here, the one... I read this morning, or this, uh, yeah, before we get to it, I read this uh, 1 Corinthians 1 this morning. Before we get to that, I'll give you a little bit more. How the gospel gets perverted. While the gospel is the very, quote, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we just read that in Romans 1.16, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. There might be people listening to my voice right now, and they're going, this guy is on crack. <laughs> Why? No... <laughs> Come on, Jeremy. Right? This, what is this guy smoking in the back room? Why? Why would they say that? You know why? Because they think the cross is foolishness. Because what I'm saying is foolishness to them. Why? Because they're unbelievers. They are perishing. That's the whole point. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Unsaved, professing Christians, God knows there's a ton of them in this area, unsaved, professing Christians are the ones who reject what Jesus said about himself and his own gospel, like the conversation I had with that person. If I was asked that person, are you a Christian? They'd say, absolutely. How dare you suggest otherwise? But you just said that the word of God is wrong. And you know who says he is the very word of God? Jesus Christ. So if he's a liar on one point, you might as well throw the whole Bible out then. Either you believe what's in here or you don't. Unsaved professing, professing Christians are the ones who reject what Jesus said about himself and his gospel. 1 John 2.23 up here in the board. I'll give it to you. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There is no other way, no other name to get to the Father, to be saved, but through Jesus Christ. If you think you can save yourself, you have a major problem on your hands. You cannot save yourself. This is what we should be telling people. Not just this maniacal ball guy from a pulpit in North Dighton. It should be all of you out there spreading the gospel, challenging people, saying, hey, listen, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. You weren't born good. Oh, but I do all these good things. But your attitude stinks to the high heavens, literally. It's all wood, hay, and straw. It's all for naught. The only way you're ever going to be righteous enough 
to fellowship with God for all of eternity is to have Jesus Christ's own righteousness imputed to you by God the Father. That's what happens at salvation. You will never measure up to the holy God of the universe. Whoever denies us, and that's what Jesus Christ stood for, what I just said. So you either believe that or you don't. If you believe it, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, the one who confesses the Son. If you agree, remember, confess means to homologeo, it means to agree with. The Son has the Father also. Those are the facts. So let's read our passage now, the one that I sat down over. Well, I almost said coffee, but I can't have coffee anymore, so my green tea and honey. In keeping with our primary course of study, let's keep an eye on the word power as it is interwoven into this passage. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. I'm just going to read it. I mean, it's just so impregnated with so much of what we've been studying over the past, I'd say, six months to a year. I'm just going to read it with you, and I challenge you to go home this evening, read it again on your own time, uh, see what the Spirit says in your own, in your own life. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you will be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by closed people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is, here it is, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's everything to us. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In other words, very simply, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You can see Paul's heart there. You can see how he depends on the very power of God. You can see how he dispels the human rationalism, human wisdom, throws it out. And Paul was, frankly, more intelligent than most people in his, quote, graduating class, so to speak. Again, the reason for the last two principles is to get us rightly postured on the very power of God. Let me give them to you again. How the gospel gets perverted. A person who doesn't understand salvation proper won't seek the Savior, the savior proper. Rather, they will seek a different Savior to a different problem statement. The latter is how Satan deceives the world. He proposes a different problem. And while the gospel is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Unsaved professing Christians. Now they may be your toughest soil to borrow from the parable of soils. A profess, an unbelieving professing Christian may be the most difficult soil you ever try to sow seed on. Why? Because they think they already have it right and they're arrogant and they're puffed up and they say, no, thank you. I've got my religion. All I do on Sundays is check a little box. Uh -huh. And because I check this box, because I put on a nice suit, maybe I even put on a tie for Jesus Christ and for God, he's impressed somehow. And that's what's going to get me into heaven. I just go to every so often. All right, all right, maybe I don't do it that much. Maybe I go on Easter and Christmas. And I go with grandma, but because it's with grandma who's like, holy, you know, God's like, oh, you, you know, by virtue of you being next to that holy woman who may even be an unbeliever, by the way, next to that holy woman who's so devout in her religion, God's pleased. And that's what I need to do to be saved. So go away, Mr. Bald Guy. Go away, Jeremy. Go away, Michael. Go away, Scotty. Go away, all you kids in the back who are interested. Go away from all you, all you people. Just shuffle along. Just shuffle along. Because I've got my religion, thank you very much. And it includes me saving myself. Just watch me how I dress up this baby. 
and they parade. You know, picture this. This is what goes in and out of a lot of churches on Sundays, by the way. A parade of these. Right? There's Grandma. There's Uncle Jimmy. There's you. Trying to impress God. And he's like, I'm not impressed. I'm impressed with my son. Do you believe in him? Because I'll give you his righteousness if you do. But I'm not impressed with this at all because I see right past it and you smell and you're ugly. <laughs> that may be the case anyways and you might be saved, but that's a physical thing. We'll have another discussion about cleanliness at some later date after we get the gospel straight. <laughs> Unsaved professing Christians are the ones who reject what Jesus said about himself. That's the whole point. And this is why John wrote this. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So you don't just, you don't just believe that Jesus was some guy, some famous guy from the Bible. You actually have to believe who he said he was. He said, I am the Savior. He said, I am he. I'm the one you've been looking for. You either believe that or you don't. Because if you don't believe that, you don't get the Father. And if you're trying to get a free ticket, an easy ticket to heaven, you don't get the ticket either. Sorry. Oh, and just a little spoiler alert for those of you who really enjoyed the last blog. I renamed it Part 1. <laughs> so through the power of your extreme intellect and inductive reasoning, can you guess what this week's blog is going to be about? <laughs> Maybe it's part two. It's going out on a limb. In case you didn't have that extreme intellect. In any case, the fundamental truth being explained relates to Paul's statement. Go to Romans 7.18. Romans 7.18. And this is where our own witness comes in, because if Paul was here right now, you'd say, that guy really is living you know, as unto the Lord, and you'd be probably convinced of it just by his, who, how he lived, his example, right? But we're supposed to be examples. And when, you, when someone from without, someone from without, from on the other side of the body of Christ, sees a person like that, and then that person says straight up, yeah, I'm nothing. There is nothing good in me. Thank God for my Lord and Savior. Maybe, just maybe, that makes that person listen. Maybe, just maybe, that's why you've been put in their life. Maybe they look at you and say, you know what? I really do look up to you in certain ways. I, I appreciate your love for Christ. I appreciate how he's been changing you. I've been watching you from afar. And then you say, you know what? The only reason I'm being changed is because I'm humble. And it started with a humility about my own depravity that there isn't anything. I wasn't born good. Certainly not good enough to be on par or with parity with the holy God of the universe who occupies heaven, where I'd really like to go. When you say that to them, when you say that I was born depraved, maybe, just maybe, they'll listen. And they'll relate to you and say, you know what, deep down inside, I know I'm depraved too. Because when no one's looking, you should see what goes through my head. Can you imagine having like a, uh, this would be bad. Can you imagine having like a little uh, touch screen on your forehead that as your thoughts went by, it was projected and everybody could see it? 
Right? Are you going to say all those little thoughts you're having, especially you young guys over there? <laughs> all, you, all those sick thoughts you're having? Some pretty little thing walks by. What's on the screen? <laughs> oh, I'd like to buy you a daisy. No. <laughs> nope. Maybe some daisy dokes. Sick. Sick. Guys, it only gets worse. You see, all you have to realize is that you were, you were born depraved. And no matter how, you, how much you dress it up, it doesn't matter. The whole point is that you know that you're depraved. You know that that's not godly. You know why? Because the God who created you told you it's not godly. You have a certain morality instilled in you, believe it or not, says, hey, listen, I'm not holy. I mean, God's holy. He's perfect and righteous. If he had a screen here, it certainly wouldn't be doing that. So I know. And as an example, look at Paul. He says, Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And if you know anything about Romans 7, you know that's his, big, his great treatise in the book of Romans on the battle between the flesh and the new creature. It doesn't end at salvation. We know this. That's why we still sin long after salvation. This leaves human rationalism and human good works at an impasse, doesn't it? Someone who says, oh, I was born good. God created everybody good. I guess Paul was a liar. Well, if Paul was a liar, then we've got to throw more than half the New Testament books out. We have a problem at that point. I guess Jesus lied to him when he knocked him down and then, you know, evangelized him and then taught him. <laughs> I don't think so. So these... Passages like this and stark statements from Paul like this leave human rationalism and human good works at an impasse. Indeed. It's funny because people seem not to like Romans 7.18 very much because it completely demolishes any notion that man can somehow be righteous enough, be good enough to enter into heaven as if that should be one's focus even to start with. They don't like it because it actually reveals the truth about the matter, that they were born depraved, and the thoughts they're having are depraved thoughts. As we began with this evening, the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. It means if you're ever going to be delivered from those things, it has to be from God. Because even if you try for a long time, you're going to realize that trying to dress up the pig is literally the definition of futility. Trying to make that thing better. The only thing you're going to get better at, honestly, the only thing you're ever going to get better at is putting on a show. You'll just be a better manipulator of, you, of this facade you call the piggy, the dressed up pig. That's why probably a lot of people aren't you know, put away permanently. If we saw their minds, it's because they're facades. The gospel is the very power of God for salvation, so says Scripture. And as Paul continued, it pervades our lives from faith to faith. That's Romans 1.17, implying, as we've been learning, that faith is power. If you want power, if you want to be delivered from your natural estate, then you have to have God's power to do it. You are, your power is insufficient. 
in every sense of the word. And that doesn't just stop at salvation. It stops. It doesn't stop until we're fully sanctified, ultimately. So we need his power every single day. Because why? We need to be saved daily. Faith is power. You might ask yourself, well, how do I know for sure if I have faith in the word? Easy. You are obedient to it. Don't become legalistic. Don't say, oh, well, you give me the rules and I'll abide by them. Your heart's not in it. If your heart's in it and you're obedient to the word, then you know you have faith. Go to Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13. How do you know you have faith in the word? Easy. You are obedient to it. If faith is power, then it's going to deliver you. This is why a lot of people say, why am I not delivered? Why am I still miserable? Why have I been at this for so long? I'm still miserable. Because you don't have the faith. And because you don't have the faith, you haven't been delivered by the very power of God. Because it is the very power of God for salvation. That's the gospel. The good news. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, not you. It doesn't say man who is at work in you. It doesn't say it is yourself who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the what? Word of life. Why? Because that's where the power is. Holding fast. The thing you want of all things is right here, my friends. This is it. This is what you want. About. This is the great jewel. This is more precious than gold. This is what you want in your soul. You hold fast to the word of life. That's why we're here tonight. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In other words, Paul said, I want what's best for you, as, as does this shepherd that's talking to you right now. Why am I here? For you. Because Jesus, my Lord, said, teach them the truth, in season and out of season. When it's popular or unpopular, it doesn't matter. The truth is the truth. Cling to it. The word of life up here on the board refers to the gospel, which, when believed, produces spiritual and eternal life, a la Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now that is power. That is power. Like I said, I think it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, the fact that anybody sitting here right now is saved is a miracle. It's flat out a miracle. You don't perform miracles, which means you can't save yourself. You're not going to be able to save yourself. But the fact that any of us are saved, that's real power, and therefore it's a miracle. And to add to that, on the word of life, the word of God speaks often of its own power and its abilities to sanctify whatever it is that God desires to set apart for his purposes. God has a plan, and the word of life is what accomplishes it. Remember we saw all those passages by the word of God, by the word of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The heavens were made. Uh, the earth was, uh, everything is done. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's in Hebrews. Everything's held together, even physics, science, chemistry, everything. The air that we breathe, everything, molecules, think about it, everything. 
the important things being the spiritual things, never letting us go. I lost not one. God is faithful. He says, if I'm going to call you out, I'm going to keep you. That's the bind that really matters, not whether or not I let this thing go and all of a sudden it goes up. Wouldn't that freak you out? <laughs> right? That would be, you know, him saying, just for a moment, I'm going to prove a point to show you that I'm the one in control even of gravity. But who cares if this thing stays right here, floats up? I mean, we'd be kind of wigging out. But what's more important is that he doesn't let go his bond to us as his children, as Jesus' sheep. That's what's really important. That's what we need to have real faith in, and that's why we cling to the word of life the way we do, and that's why we have gratitude as we started off this evening. So such is the power of the word of God to sanctify. The concept of sanctification can be lost in theology or in the theology of it. It's a big word. So the Spirit gave us some practical food for thought up here on the board. This is about our lives. If we think real practically about what sanctification is, what does it mean to be sanctified? So he says, I save you. Um, I've saved you from the penalty of sin. Now I need to sanctify you, set you apart from the power of sin. And then eventually I'm going to set you apart from the very presence of sin. We've, I've taught you this as positional, experiential, and ultimate sanctification. I don't really care if you know those terms necessarily, but that's how it goes. Here's the point. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives, under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. Maybe somebody got saved this, this evening. I don't know. That'd be cool. Maybe not. Maybe somebody was saved and they saw something new in Holy Scripture and they have one iota more understanding or wisdom about that Scripture as it applies maybe to their own life. Maybe they hadn't seen it before. Maybe that perspective hadn't gone through their own soul before, and now it has. That's sanctification. It doesn't have to be this big emotional upheaval where I'm flipping, you know, we're flipping tables over and running around and levitating, and that doesn't happen here. <laughs> so if anybody decides levitating, I'm going to ask you to leave. Right? <laughs> You know what I'm getting at? It's not sanctification, right? Life's short compared to eternity, but it's long enough. And God takes us in baby steps. And some of us, if you've been with it, sometimes you have these like, you know, you just ramp up, especially when you first get saved. You're like, oh, I love Jesus Christ. And then like, you know, you kind of do this number. Then you go up and then, you know, and sometimes it feels like you're dipping a little bit. I call it the stock market. If you ever watch a positive stock market, it's like this. It always goes up. If you were to trend the whole line, it always goes up and to the right, but you have these dips and, you know, it goes up. and so this, It's like that's how life is and from my perspective. I have highs and lows, but ultimately I believe in this promise to sanctify me. Philippians 1.6, I promise to sanctify you, he says. So we, we know that it's going to always go up and to the right, but you're going to have up and downs and et cetera. So anytime there is godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. That's a very good thing, and it will keep us from being frustrated, from saying, you know, why am I not, you know, super sanctified now? Why am I not a spiritual giant like Paul? Even Paul wouldn't say that about himself, frankly. 
James wrote about this in his book, and we don't have much time left, so let's go quickly. It's when we truly understand these things. Now listen, James wrote about this in his book. It's when we truly understand these things that we can begin to see the depths of what James was trying to convey in the book after his name. You see, a lot of misled people, even so-called Christians, misinterpret the book of James. Why? Because deep down, you ready? They want to. That's why. Because they, they want it to be a, a, a religious book. They want it to be a legalistic book that says, well, you've got to do this, this, or this, or you don't have faith. They want it to be that thing. That's why. Deep down, they want to misinterpret the book of James. The flesh loves, loves, loves religion which, in other words, we call human good works to satisfy God's justice and righteousness. Why? Because the cross is foolishness to the flesh. You see, the cross is too easy. You mean Jesus Christ died? God became man, he died on the cross for me? And I have to believe it? I have to accept that? I have to repent of my own depravity and accept on faith that truth? Yeah. It sounds too easy. I know. What's the problem? The flesh. The flesh is no way. No way. The flesh is all about creature credit. I want a part in this thing. Even if it's 99% God and 1% me, that's good by me. And that's how many religions flourish. We'll give you a little peace in your own salvation. We'll lie to you. We'll tell you that you just have to be a little bit good. All right, listen. Jesus Christ did all this stuff. But he didn't die for murder, so if you murder anybody, that's a, you know, you had your ticket, God's going to take it back. You had a free ticket. If you murder somebody, you're going to hell. Even if you were already saved, we're going to lie to you. We're going to tell you that there's certain sins. We're going to give them fancy names, too. We're going to tell you there's certain sins like, you know, uh, suicide and murder, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, whatever. And we're going to say those ones are so bad and so heinous that even if you, were, even if you believed in Jesus Christ, you're still going to hell. So what do you have to say? What did that just do? It put the flesh on a works program. Better not kill anybody. Better not commit suicide. Some of you are like, oh, crap, man. <laughs> I always go back to, like, you know, David. Moses. I mean, these are murderers. Paul. Murderers. You going to tell me they weren't saved? Of course they were saved. And they murdered people. Because that has nothing to do with it. Jesus Christ paid for every sin on the cross, not just most of them. The flesh hates that idea, hates it. Hates it with a passion. Why? Because it has nothing to do. It has no way to make itself and separate itself for itself and sanctify itself for itself in the presence of other people's fleshes to make it look better, to make that, that person's flesh appear better so that they can elevate themselves and be better and feel better about themselves because there's such a good little doobie. As long as I'm better than that guy, God's got to choose me into heaven, right? That guy's going to hell for sure, right? Huh, can I say, huh? Can I get an amen? That guy's pathetic. He, he's like killed three people. He's, he smokes. That's kind of a joke, right? It wasn't, what, seriously, smoking? Right? <laughs> Can't you do something a little fiercer than that? 
he chews his fingernails, he's totally going to hell, right? You're laughing, but it's ridiculous. Either he died for all the sins or he didn't. Amen? Yeah. Flesh hates that. Hates it. Because it can't, it can't somehow finagle itself above other people. And that's what the flesh wants. It's all creature credit. So, the cross is foolishness to the flesh. Because it's too easy. However, to we who believe, it is everything. Foolishness to the flesh, everything to us. Everything. Amen? I lied to you. We're not going to read James because we're out of time. So just come back. I can still in my notes. I promise. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to just revel in your grace and your love and your mercy in the gospel of your Son. Thank you so much for making it so abundantly clear to us. The inescapable truth is what it is, regardless of what people have to say about it, how they might reject it even. The cross is not foolishness. It is everything, Father, and we thank you for making that reality in our lives. We just ask for traveling mercies as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.